Rachel. Yes, Andy. Sam. Yes, Andy. What's the best thing you ever saw? Hello and welcome back to Best Thing I Ever Saw, where we savor and digest a cinematic taste test of a revolutionary genre. I'm Andy. I'm Rachel. And I'm Sam. And first off, we'd like to thank our, my roommate, Dylan Stratton, for the theme music that you just heard. America's roommate. still hearing. <laughs> America's <laughs> roommate. <laughs> and also thanks to Leah Sardarian for our lovely uh, thumbnail art. What, uh, what's, you mentioned revolutionary. What are we talking about today? We are, it's a, it's a best thing I ever saw first. <laughs> uh, three, it's, you know, it's the longest we've ever taken to prepare an episode. <laughs> and it's, uh, and it's the me. first time uh, we're doing, we're not doing a particular genre per se. We're doing the films of 1967. Inspired first and foremost by Mark Harris's book from, I think, 2007, uh, Pictures at a Revolution, where he documents the, the gestation and development of the five films that would eventually be nominated for Best Picture uh, at the 40th Academy Awards in 1968. So Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, and Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a pretty well-established book. It's a pretty well-established um, era of uh, not only American history, but film history. Um, hey, look, it's a pivotal stepping stone on my genre journey. And... Speaking of which... Yeah, I guess I'm doing this is speaking of best thing I ever saw first. I'm doing I'm sort of doing a uh, memento-esque genre journey where I'm going backwards in time. I finished Pictures at a Revolution this morning. Uh, last <laughs> night, I continued the final chapter. And like 25 years ago, I pointed to the 30... It's not 30, 15 James Bond VHS tapes on the shelf and said, hey, that one looks good. And my dad and I watched You Only Live Twice. Jump back to college where I saw The Graduate. I feel like most, uh, you know, most uh, teen, like late teenage boys have like their graduate phase. Sam, do you have a graduate phase? Phase? In that I watched it after the AP test in AP English. Oh, good grief. Oh, God, I don't... That's a weird thing to watch in school. <laughs> it's so weird. But there's a nipple in it. <laughs> <laughs> also trivia... There's a nipple in my breakfast. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> That's how I've gotten a lot of free meals that way. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, I was going to say, interestingly, not Anne Bancroft's nipple. It was her body doubles nipple, and uh, the the contractual uh, conditions of of the appearance 
of that nipple were so, uh, I guess, serious and severe that uh, Bancroft was given the, a copy of the footage to put in her personal vault should it ever be needed uh, for uh, legal proceedings. If uh, like other footage was used or they tried to like pass off more so-called Anne Bancroft nudity in The Graduate. She is one classy broad. To be in the Bancroft vault, alone with that nipple. And what, I wonder what else is in there. But probably some pictures of Mel. <laughs> probably. <laughs> some nudies of Mel, bro. Oh, God. But yeah, we're talking graduate phases. I was probably nine, 18, 19 years old, and I, you know, the credits rolled, and Catherine Ross... Dustin Hoffman drive away in the back of the bus. And I thought that's the best thing I ever saw. But I, I was quite affectionate for it back in, back in the day. And uh, I don't know. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it down the road here. Uh, got some evolved additional thoughts about it. Sorry, I'm still laughing about it. Yeah, that's pretty much I, it. I mean, I, this is kind of these will be our like our slightest genre journeys. Yeah, I can't think of uh, such for me for such different like watching the graduate in a room full of classmates after an AP test in AP English in high school, and then watching it again now. I had such different thoughts about it, um, and just like to, I think I just consumed it so differently that it was almost like two different movies. Um, I guess I'll go next for genre journey. I similarly probably, well, no, I think I started with Jungle Book was my first 1967 entree. Um, and then I really only, th I think I only saw four of these movies, no, five of these movies, sorry, uh, before, before, are before watching the rest of them for this podcast that was jungle book producers our household being a mel brooks household that was a pretty early watch uh you only live twice i've seen that many times as i have seen all but probably diamonds of forever of the sean connery bond films many times the Graduate I had seen that once in high school. And then I believe I saw Dirty Dozen in kind of a boys sleepover situation and didn't remember most of it. It was relatively early on at Joe Luther's house in his basement. Um, Don't dox Joe Luther. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you if I tried. Um, and yeah, and I was kind of intrigued. I had heard, I listened to enough movie podcasts to hear about kind of like the 70s as like a golden age of filmmaking. So, and I rightly or wrongly believed Andy that there was a book out there that claimed in 1967 was the beginning of that era. Um, so I was kind of, <laughs> and as he holds up the book, um, I was interested to, to, to see what had happened and also just kind of fill in my the whole I have many many holes in my historical movie 
kind of like what were considered the best movies of of history um and i have a lot of holes and and this was a great way to fill up the the some of the older ones yeah um for mine i guess i can take credit for this podcast because i bought andy pictures at a revolution for hanukkah five six years ago um we were going through a pretty big uh podcast uh phase of a enemy movie podcast um which they all are because we're you know competing with them uh and i wanted to give him some some sort of like movie historical book and um i didn't actually read it but i'd read enough about it to know that seemed interesting and like sam said you know this idea of sort of i find it very intriguing that there's like a single year that kind of bridged the gap between you know, the sort of older way of making movies and the newer, whatever, you know, way of making movies, way of showing movies, consuming movies, expectations for movies. Um, I mean, it is pretty, like, intense when you look at, you know, the, the Academy Awards for 1905, 1966, 1967, like, right before, you know, not exactly the same like classics and even like Mike Nichols was doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf which I've never seen but is like from what I can understand a very different type of movie than The Graduate um and just looking at the list there were just a lot of things on there that were considered like major cinematic achievements that I had never watched and I certainly wanted to and yeah like I think that my list was very similar to Sam's although I hadn't seen the Bond movie before at least not like very consciously uh-oh um what's up that, that just probably means you had a very different view of it than i do oh it's not a good movie i mean i don't know if anyone was paying attention but it's not a good movie um so there's that but um yeah i was really excited to like get into this one um and to just like very much live at this time i think it's super interesting that so much of you know like for what you think would be like a very revolutionary time in terms of like peace, love and harmony or whatever, the revolution was, it seems like seemingly in movies was much more economic and much less like social and political, um, which I think is interesting. So, and I just love that like Dr. Doolittle like burned down the system. Like Dr. Doolittle was the Louis the 16th of the revolution. Like just so, terrible and inept that just made everyone realize how awful these bloated pointless movies were i love that fact love it so anyway that's my genre journey let's define Next. some define some terms yeah so what well, does a movie have easy. to be to be a 1967 movie well, it's, it theoretically is easy, but then we like last night we're yeah. realizing that there's some like hitches in our plan. So that it had to have its premiere in 1967 because technically the release date for the producers was in January 1968. Its premiere was November 22nd, 1967 in Philly, I believe. Pittsburgh. Was it Pittsburgh? Never mind. I, I'm all here for Pittsburgh erasure, but in Pittsburgh and people hated it so much that they're like, Ooh, we might not release this movie. And then Peter Sellers wrote a, uh, 
editorial and variety and was like, you need to release this movie. And so in January they did. So in some places like a court in, the Academy Awards website, the Turner Classic Movies website, they call the producers a 1968 movie, but we were going by premiere date, which would have it be 1967. That's so meta. Yeah, so it, yes, it was honored. It is very the, meta. It wasn't honored until the um, 60, it was honored in 69, 69. for the 68 movies. Cause I like, I feel like, how are there two best it? original what screenplay oh, awards? <laughs> I was, I did look at, I was looking at the, uh, the Oscars from 1968 and I, I, I kind of assumed that it just hadn't been awarded anything, which it hadn't. So anyway. Mel, yeah, Mel, Mel Brooks for the 41st Academy Awards won Best Original Screenplay and Gene Wilder was nominated for Supporting Actor. Oh, you just don't have us listen to listed here. But it's because it's the following year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or whoever did the stats. Uh, so so that's uh, that's all for defining terms. Yeah, I think so. And then we'll talk more sort of about what the details of what it seems like the trends are, what makes a 1967 movie a 1967, like that revolutionary aspect of it later. But it was pretty easy to figure out what a 1967 movie is. <laughs> Until speaking last which, night. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, um, here's the list that we all watched. Um, I won't say Justify the year they were made in because Justify no, <laughs> uh, Belle de Jour, Barefoot in the Park, You Only Live Twice, The Dirty Dozen, In the Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, Two for the Road, The Jungle Book, Cool Hand Luke, The Producers, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Valley of the Dolls, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, and Weekend. It was a weekend to the list. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would after talking after you guys. La da. Who are you? The guy who wrote Sam, that retrospective review Sam for the loves, Village Voice I read last night. Sam loves a twenty-minute tracking shot. He can't. He can't deny it. He loves a twenty-minute tracking shot. Hey, I'll take that over a lot of the scenes. <laughs> no, I think that that is the reason why people like that movie. Is because of the twenty-minute tracking shots. There's literally nothing, know, else, just, a, nothing else about it that feels like achievements. Ionesco-esque kind of feel to it, but with less metaphor. That's sort of a Alice in Wonderland meets Marquis de Sade um, vibe to it. That was me throwing up. Uh, so what's next? Well, wait a minute, I. I had a few more. I had a few more notes <laughs> for your list. Oh, okay. Well, I'm because Rachel, you mentioned this when you were beginning to just justify my list. Um, we haven't really talked much about, and maybe it'll come up naturally, but just to kind of give some further context on really, um, you know, what was the state of the industry at that time that made these movies, not just the ones that are nominated for Best Picture, but other ones as well from that year at a so-called revolution. And as the, as the Best Picture category played out, you had this sort of 
old versus new, um, LA versus New York sort of dichotomy where you have Doolittle, which is sort of the very institutional Oscar politicking, um, you know, just like mammoth of a like studio product that um, was trying to ride the wave, the the sinking wave of uh, the um, big old musical. Yeah, hitherto extremely financially and critically successful musical. It was, you know, it was the same studio as The Sound of Music, which was released a few years earlier. So you had the, um, you know, the very consistent success of um, My Fair Lady, followed by Mary Poppins, followed by The Sound of Music. So they, you know, there's like, well, how could we lose with, um, you know, not only, uh, you know, another big three hour with an intermission musical, but we got Rex Harrison. And I mean, just the, I'm it sure felt, this did, we'll get into later, but the production it, of that was just, it's hysterical. It felt like it was trying to be built on the bones in a lot of ways of My Fair Lady, of the Britishness of it. Um, I don't know, some of the set pieces in the middle with the circus kind of felt my Fair Lady esque and obviously Rex Harrison as well, but um, did not succeed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, like, just looking over Academy Award winners, uh, sorry, I probably interrupt. Andy, were you done? I just wanted No, or I can, you can. Oh, just looking over the like, previous Academy Award winners, like for Best Picture, there were like, there was like the big old musical category. That was like one. So your Mary Poppins is your, um, your My Fair Ladies is your, you know, whatever. I guess my, my Mary Poppins is your sound of music's whatever. There is the this was a Broadway play and therefore is very serious category. So your your Who's Afraid is a Virginia Woolf. Your those sorts of things. Um, and then there was like the epics, which was kind of even over before like the 67 Oscars, but your Cleopatra's and your Zorba the Greeks and your Dr. Zhivago's and things like that. You know, these big things. It was either these massive scales, scale epics, tiny little was a play, and then the musicals, which were sort of in between. And there are hints beforehand of things maybe changing, like Dr. Strangelove maybe doesn't get enough credit for that you know what i mean like dr strangelove feels like it could be a 1967 movie even though it was released two years earlier but the idea of like movies that are made for to be a movie like that we think of now you know like you know what i mean i I can't think of it any other way but like the graduate i i think it's funny because i actually think it has been adapted into either a play or musical but like it clearly was not based on a play you know or i think Um, it's about to be maybe i think the graduate is about so which is absurd but like clearly that was that was a movie made to be a movie you know there um and not because it was huge but because there was sort of a humanity to it same Um, within the heat of the night yes like these like mid-sized pieces and you know a, a movie like um guess who's coming to dinner even which has a lot of things that feel like a play but sort of you know, works better as a movie because you can see, like, the visuals are just so much more effective. Anyway, I just think that it's a really interesting thing that, like, these, what was considered a good movie, at least by the Academy, was very different. And this is why Bonnie and Clyde is considered such a big deal. It's because Bonnie and Clyde, for everything that it's not, it is, like, definitely breaking. It's a different kind of epic. 
in a smaller way, in a more sort of emotional and intimate way um, that feels a lot more like the movies that we see these days. I mean, it is just shocking to go through that list and be like, oh, like movies, like we know it as an Oscar movie starts in 1968 or 19, like the ninth with 1967 movies. Cause yeah, cause Bonnie and Clyde in a way it was, it was an epic story about like unepic people. Yeah. Like the people in it are, are not larger than life at all. And the acting style is different. The camera style is different. I mean, like, I don't know. If you've that's seen the a more lot of, like revolutionary. I mean, that I mean, I guess most people. Not that we have to agree with them, but most film, uh, you know, scholars would say that these the so-called revolutionaries of the group are Arthur Penn and the rest of the creators behind Bonnie and Clyde and uh, Mike Nichols with The Graduate. That it was you know the two sort of more art house younger. Um, you know, they were both New York stage directors, Nichols and Penn had, you know, I guess an East Coast sentimentality or mentality, um, you know, sort of more self-serious versus a sort of, you know, glossy, um, institutional type like uh, Dr. Doolittle. And then, and then you have In the Heat of the Night and um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which are, you know, tr- trying to reflect... Um, you know, the social and, and racial um, climate of the time, Stanley Kramer's kind of, uh, again, the old guard is kind of, you know, representing that old guard. And I guess Norman Jewison is kind of like somewhere in the middle with like, you know, he's sort of in that Mike Nichols class of burgeoning young director, but he's a pretty traditional filmmaker. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's this big confluence of, um, the old and the new, the old guards, L.A., New York. Um, for some reason, the dragons and the dragonflies, which Mark Harris calls them. <laughs> the to me, the I, the way to visualize this difference, the best way to visualize it is opening shots, like the the like the shot that you're like, oh my god, that's a that's gonna make the movie. That makes it an Oscar movie. In Sound of Music, it's the giant sweeping helicopter coming in to watch Julie Andrews spin around. And it's just epic mountains. And it's a heli- It's just like a very epic helicopter shot. And it's a certain way of thinking about movies. It's like, to how big can we make these set pieces? Which is funny, because I feel like we're talking about today. But in The Graduate, it's him going down the LAX, uh, what do you call those things, at the airport? Oh, like the, the moving sidewalk. Moving sidewalks. Yeah, it's just the moving sidewalk shot. And like, that's kind of like, I think the difference is like, those are both the iconic shots of those movies. And you can see that they're graded on very different rubrics. Um, if you just think about like, and they were both considered like brilliant works of a director and only two years apart. What, you know, I don't know, like, I don't know if the moving sidewalk shot would have been iconic in 1965. It's just, yeah, that's the, to me, that's like what, how you can visualize that very easily if you know Sound of Music and The Graduate well. Okay, so now we are going to go into our statistics portion of the episode where we go over the hard numbers relating to um, all of our movies. Hello. Oh my God, who is this? Uh, Yes. 1967. (laughs) Great year for movies. 
A great year for Rhode Island, the ocean state. Are you there? I'm there, I'm there. Who are you? Where's Andy? Oh, I passed him on the way in. On my way in from Rhode Island, the ocean state. <laughs> Is Rhode Island an island off of New Zealand? <laughs> No. <laughs> oh, 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 the one in the northeastern portion of the United States. Okay. We got that now. Oh, man. Wow. It's nice to see you. I, I, it's, um, do you have anything to say about the statistics of these movies? I'd like to get back to my name. <laughs> okay, yeah, what's you your asked name? Me, we kind of glazed over it. What's what is your name? name? My name is Carmine Stat Mancini. In Rhode Island, they call me the Stat Man. Carmine Stat Mancini. I'm a bit oh. of a cinephile. <laughs> and I came here to cast one vote for Bernie Sanders, <laughs> 34 votes for our next president, Joe Biden. And to stump the schmoolies. <laughs> um, do you have anything to say about any particular seafoods that you prefer? Yeah. Uh, what do you, what's your ah. chowder of choice? Or not, I mean, I, I, you know, shellfish specifically, I'm curious. I'm guessing you've heard of my fellow Rhode Islander, Joseph <laughs> McNamara. Sure. Joe's not a friend. <laughs> he stole my idea for the roll call at the Democratic National Convention. That was your idea, Carmine? Yes, Stand I'm man? a bit of a cinephile. I'm a Rhode Island <laughs> stat head. And I'm a bit of a mug for Democratic National Convention roll calls. Sure. <laughs> so, okay, so just to go back for the listeners... The Rhode Island had an iconic roll call this year, and I'm sorry if this is triggering for you, Statman, where they talk specifically about calamari fishermen and how they're being affected by COVID-19. Are you saying that that was your idea, Statman? Look, Rhode Island's been decimated by the <laughs> pandemic, but it hasn't stopped us from producing calamari that's available in all 50 states. So are you saying that the calamari I would get in the freezer section is Rhode Island calamari? <laughs> Look, you might have stumped me. <laughs> okay, you're more of an enthusiast and less of an expert is what you're saying, Statman. Well, if we're talking Rhode Island obscure Rhode Island trivia. <laughs> now, if I may... <laughs> <laughs> I would like to ask of the Shmoolies. Yes. The Rhode Island. As we all know, Rhode Island has no county government. It's divided into how many municipalities, each having its own form of local government. Is there a multiple choice or? Over under? I thought they called you the Shmoolies for a reason there. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> this is not movie related. Uh, I'm going with three. I'm good. Can I can I do it or do I not qualify as a non-release? Who's talking? Rachel. <laughs> No, Nick, I'm ah, sorry. Rachel, you're the first woman I've seen since our governor, <laughs> Gina Raimondo. <laughs> yes. Look, this that man gets kind of lonely. My interaction <laughs> with women during the pandemic has been decimated. Statman. I I'm married, please. This is rude. And Can her, I guess and, about the municipalities? And her, and her husband will be coming back any minute now. <laughs> he looked like he was under a bit of duress. <laughs> I might have kicked Sam, him a few times. Samuel, did you kill my husband? I don't do politics. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Wait, what is dark brown? What is, is dark brown? <laughs> Wait, I wanted to guess about the municipality. Yeah, you haven't told the shit. He's an enthusiast for trivia and that he likes asking, but he doesn't know the answer. Okay. Sam, those are very cool sunglasses, by the way. These are Rachel, Rhode Island guess? sunglasses. Rachel, what was your okay. guess? Like Rhode Island sunglasses production has been decimated by the pandemic. My guess is 35 municipalities in Rhode Island. 39. I was so close! Statman! I was so close. All right, what is dark brown or black with white markings and found on both sides of the Narragansett Bay, but not north of Cumberland? <laughs> dark brown with black spots is what you said? With white, with white markings. I do not repeat myself. I'm kind of like that guy from white, Inside Mace. <laughs> On both sides <laughs> of the Narragansett. Is your answer to just repeat the question? <laughs> I don't know, Samuel. What's the answer? The answer is Cumberlandite, the official rock of Rhode Island, the ocean state. <laughs> oh, God. Very cool. Very cool. All right. One more. <laughs> Nine Men's Misery Monument in Cumberland is the oldest known monument to veterans in the United States. In what year was it erected? <laughs> That's a silly word. Um, uh, 19, or no, not 19. Nope, nope. 1785. 1796. Was a great age for our governor, Gina Raimondo. 1786. 1785. One of you keeps getting strangely close to these answers. The answer is 1776. Shmuley's was closer. Yeah. 
Okay. And what did you guess, Rachel? I said 1786 because then I was like... Oh, you just did one over mine? Yeah. It was strategizing. Well, you lost. I, fair enough. Shmoolies don't get stumped twice. I think you went over for 3. <laughs> He's competing against me, not competing against you. Okay. So you have no other questions for us? <laughs> Or do you want us to ask you? It was, was kind of like a wait, wait, don't tell something? me thing. Okay. okay. Some, he went, he went three and out. So now does he get your voice on his answering machine? Or that I don't get your voice on? <laughs> yeah, you don't get. <laughs> so the loser gets you your. Got to rewatch the last episode of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's <laughs> not a win. <laughs> Okay. I thought you. I was going to get to talk about the best thing I ever saw. Oh, yeah. What's the best thing you ever saw? You are on this podcast after all, Statman. Final 10 minutes of the Jungle Book. <laughs> oh, God, no. Statman, well, maybe, why? Well, maybe the first five minutes of Belle du Jour. <laughs> oh, God, no. Belle du Jour. The... <laughs> We at the Rhode Island Historical Society are working on a supercut. <laughs> Both of those movies. It's the first five minutes of Belle du Jour and the last ten minutes of the Jungle Book. That's going to get you in trouble, Statman. We're calling it Belle du Jungle Book. <laughs> Not Jungle Jour? A late entry was Jungle Book du Jour. <laughs> we turned that thing around, flipped it in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's going to get you in trouble, Statman. Those are problematic sections of movies. Like I can tell you who it might get me in trouble with. A governor, Gina <laughs> Raimondo. Probably. Probably. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Wow, Statman. Rhode Island's it for me, everybody. Rhode Island's it for me. <laughs> we know. Bye, Statman. Oh, he's leaving. Hopefully Andy comes back. He certainly was in the bathroom for a long time. <laughs> Good thing I didn't run away with Statman. You guys had a real... Uh, I was a real chemistry. It was really popping. 2,000-year-old man Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks going on there. Did we? Yeah. I was laughing too much, though. R.I.P. It wasn't as bad as you thought it would be, right, Sam? Sure. <laughs> I feel like Shmulis, I should get like a, uh, no, that wouldn't be kosher either. Like a, like a, the old, like, palm reader headdress. But that wouldn't work. Certainly not kosher. We're talking about calamari, am I right? Sure. That accent was somewhere between New Zealand and John F. Kennedy. <laughs> I know. That's exactly right. 
Oh my god! How did he? I, I I'm very curious. To it was it was it, it some 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 days it was John F. Kennedy. Some days it was New Zealand. It's a hard. You say it. No, no, I, I, I would never try. Either. You would not that, have to pay me to to do a Rhode. I don't even know what a Rhode Island. The first the acquaintance that, I had with a Rhode Island accent was watching the roll call for the Democratic National Convention. The fact that you were close to John F. Kennedy on certain words is impressive. Yeah, I watched, I watched the, the thing two times this morning where he says, the pandemic has decimated Rhode Island's uh, like it's, Ro- it's when you say Rhode Island. It's, that's the <laughs> Rhode Island. God, Northeastern accents are so bonkers town USA. So what, uh, what are the... What are the stats for these movies? Great question. Oh, hey, you guys. Oh, hey, Andy. Oh, sorry. Uh, you didn't get beaten up on the way to the bathroom. <laughs> by a real grease wall, I can tell you that. Um, some thick-necked man. Sorry to hear about that. It's dangerous out there. I call him thick-necked man. I've been seeing him in my dreams for the last <laughs> 25 years or so. He's, he wears a bowler hat. Um, oh, God. He punches me in the groin a lot. Okay. Sure. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, <laughs> I went on an incredible genre journey, hold the genre on my way to the bathroom. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's amazing what 12 ounces of coffee will do to you when you are expecting 16. It's uh Oh, shush. <laughs> genre journey. Anyway. I hope I didn't miss anything. It smells kind of fishy in here. Well, kind of I'll talk to you about yeah, it later. He might have had some calamari in his pockets. I don't know. Although he really didn't know that much about the calamari when we asked him <laughs> about it. Sort of a figurehead, you know what I mean? Yeah. No. I don't. I was in the bathroom. (laughs) All right, let's start out with a significant figure. Number I want you to visualize in your head, 16. 16. 16 was the number of nights uh, that Fox and the producers of Dr. Doolittle offered Oscar voters to come and screen the film with unlimited free prime rib and champagne tends to usually pay dividends in the form of Best Picture nominations. Oh, wow. That is bonkers. Are they still allowed to do stuff like that? I'm not sure. Probably. I mean, Jeez, yes. Please. I mean, I, how do they not? What, yeah, it's kind of yeah. like that. It just seems very scandalous. Also, it's expensive. Free prime rib and champagne? Sticking with Doolittle, I think it was something like four or five of the animals bit um, Rex Harrison throughout production. I, I think, I mean, if you just casually research this, I think you'll you'll hear that pretty much every person involved with the movie was being repeatedly bit by animals. But <laughs> oh my like, God. The, like the dog that wasn't, one of the animatronic dogs bit him. I'm sure the seal bit him, the parrot bit him, uh, the monkey bit him. Pretty uh, 
I guess pretty expected when you're working with that many live animals. Yeah. Um, and I would have, I meant did to the get the- snail, Did the snail bite him or no? <laughs> hey, look, the snail bit all of us. <laughs> the giant moth. Oh my God, I forgot about that. It's been too long. That was Deus Ex Crapina. Um, Speaking of, speaking one figure of, I can't be too specific on is whatever angle they had to build the set. So all of the feces and urine, all the animal feces and urine could slide down to like a repository. Because when you're working with dozens of animals on a film set, they're constantly defecating. Oh God! But anyways, let's talk. Let's talk Oscar noms. Let's talk Oscar wins. A collective fourteen wins for the movies on our list. Obviously, that's kind of to be expected since these were expressly films nominated for for Best Picture and tons of other Oscars. Um, some notable things. Some notable omissions. Um, Valley of the Dolls, everyone's favorite. Uh, I guess as Sam called it, uh, PSA. About it's a, it's a it's halfway in between a soap opera and a PSA. A soap opera. A. Seems like something. I feel like the the Rhode Island historic. It seems like something the Rhode Island Historical Society would say, like trying to smush those two together and to make a like a weird portmanteau of them but anyways um john williams first oscar nomination before like 50 more he was nominated for original song score or adapted score there were like three different score categories and music categories at that time but anyways um he didn't win but williams was nominated for his first oscar for that two travesties in my opinion um the song nominated from the, the Jungle Book was The Bare Necessities and not I Want to Be Like You. Yeah, that is insane. Um, and that the song that won was not a song from The Jungle Book. It was um, to Talk insane. to the Animals. <laughs> Talk to the Animals one. Uh, and, which apparently was performed by Sammy Davis Jr. at the, um, at the ceremony. <laughs> I guess that that's what a hundred grand of prime rib champagne get you. Yeah. Yeah. They sent him a truckload of prime rib to Sammy Davis Jr.'s house. Three, uh, three of the films on our list are on the AFI 100. Graduate is number 17. Sounds pretty wild. Graduate is 17. Bonnie and Clyde is 42. And In the Heat of the Night is 75. Uh, There's a lot of peripheral AFI entries here. I won't read them all because they're kind of tedious and kind of dumb, quite frankly. (laughs) Um, But some of the, some show up in the top 10 or nearly the top 10 of their lists. Um, The producers is number 11 for laughs. I wonder what the 10 funnier movies above the producers are. Um, That's interesting. Uh, What we have here is a failure or what we've got. I don't want to misquote it. What we've got here is a failure to communicate as the number 11 quote of 100 years, 100 quotes from Cool Hand. Really? Oh. Huh. <sighs> Guess who's coming to dinner? Number 58, Passions. What? I don't know. I feel like, I'd like the, the passion is like deliberately blunted in that movie. 
but I guess good enough for 58. Yeah. On the it's list. just for that, that Spencer Tracy speech at the end. I mean, but perhaps that's why they're number 35 cheers. 100 years, 100 cheers. Cheers? Cheers, yep. So what is that supposed to just the happy moments? I guess. Cool Hand Luke is 71 on Cheers. Um, that ain't no mo- happy movie. What the fuck you're doing? It's, hey, I mean, it's, it's nothing new to say that the AFI lists are like pretty cuckoo bananas. But, <laughs> cheers. Um, in the Heat of the cuckoo Night, bananas. 21. Cheers. 100 Years, 100 Cheers, number 21 in the Heat of the Night. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Welcome to oh we actually we have a tie or we had a previously our most nominated Oscar nominated movie for many of our lists was The Exorcist, uh, which is now tied with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Both received ten nominations, and I think both res- um, won only two Oscars apiece. Uh, we'll be Bonnie breaking Cl- that record next uh, next episode, I That's believe. True. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde, nine nominations, seven for The Graduate. Uh, welcome to the BTEU. I almost missed one of these, and I would have been pretty disappointed about it, but these are kind of cool. Welcome to the BTEU, Samantha Egger. You are the brood mother from The Brood, and uh, you were whoever in Dr. Doolittle, like the romantic lead, question mark? Um, yeah, we'll get into that. Exciting for you. And uh, Donald Pleasance, pretty iconic. Dr. Loomis yeah. in Halloween <laughs> and Blofeld and You Only Live Twice. That's a very, a very odd... Wait, People like Blofeld? That. Yeah. I think there are multiple Blofelds, but he's like the original Blofeld and he's Blofeld in, in You Only Live Twice. Are you sure? Pretty sure, yeah. I, I thought he was the... Uh... No, never mind. Hold on. But welcome. Your shirts are in the mail. (laughs) Mr. Pleasance, if we're wrong, we won't make you give it back. We will exchange the size, though. Oh, my God. Oh, I was confused because you only live twice is where they have a a previous or maybe they have a different someone who's Blofeld in other Connery movies is the agent who gets killed in his kimono early on. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) And then I know the spaceship that eats the other spaceship is like later in another movie playing like a henchman. Rhode Island's it for me. All right. (laughs) The the part of the spaceship was the teeth on... What's his nuts? Never mind. Oh, Jaws. Jaws. Scares the hell out of me. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Is that it for stats? I can't. Yeah, I think so. That's it for stats? Okay. I was pretty worried. I thought it was going to be really, I thought we were going to be hard pressed to find some new BTEU initiates. Mm. But. Thank goodness for Samantha Egger and uh, Donald Pleasance. We got it. I'm not worried. So, um, let's go to categories and yes. awards. Yes. First award, we're starting off hot. 
with what, what the fuck. Oh my god. And there are whole movies that could be put into this category. <laughs> Multiple whole movies. Um, I mean, it's fresh on my mind. I just watched it two of the last three days this weekend. Oh my god. That movie makes no sense. But it's it's supposed it's a it's kind of cheating because it. it's supposed to be a what the fuck. Like that's yeah. what it's built towards. I'm not saying that that makes it okay. <laughs> um, but it's it's a little too knowing. Like it knows it's being controversial and poking you in the eye constantly and dumb and backwards. So do you have a spot? Do you have a particular scene or moment from it that you find particularly peaking? Well, what the fuckness? (laughs) I mean, it starts out and I, I had, I was trying to describe the opening scene to Alex where (laughs) she is describing the threesome that happens between her and a friend and the friend's husband or her and the friend and the friend's who in the other relationship she knows and there's food involved and is she talking to her husband or is she talking to a therapist Uh, yeah i think so i don't know it's weird but apparently that's from something if i was remembering the movie correctly and reading the review i read of it correctly that's like lifted from something that wasn't like an original but i don't yeah that famous french orgy confessional mostly naked when she's talking to whoever she's talking to um so it just kind of starts out but that is one of the more tame visually speaking um although more interesting visually visually speaking also because it's kind of the light coming in from the window. They're very in shade in the room. Um, but that goes on for a good 15 minutes. Um, I mean, all the, 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 when they're captured at the end and the cannibalistic stuff, that was pretty what the fuck. But at that point, you're pretty numb. I don't know. It at least moves pretty well at that point. Like that might be the best part of it because it's, I agree it's with not, that. it's like, it's not at a crawl at that point. Yeah. Like the, 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 in, the people that they meet along the road is really where it slows down that, that and the, the Mozart concert feel like it goes on forever. I forgot about that. And I remembered last night the there's like the two guys like leaning against the truck and one of them is just like chomping on a and the whole like thing about mayonnaise based and... sandwich and uh, it's just like I don't know uh, for me with that one the most like masturbatory like computer algorithm that came up with like an art house French movie moment is when the dispatcher is like connecting movies and i can't remember all of the movies but it's just like critically acclaimed movies to another when it's like come in the searchers this is johnny guitar yeah it's like what this is so stupid (laughs) for me it's just how 
gruesome it is. We were talking about the weekend still, right? I was looking at stats. Yeah, it's just like the unnecessary gruesomeness of it. I yeah. Think. I mean, not to, ex- I mean, that's the kind of like, it, it, there's like all of these car accidents along the road that they're kind of ignoring. You're supposed to hate them, the two main characters. It's just, effective. it feels, it's odd because I don't know how many movies like that there were, whether it was, it feels like a movie that was, that was the last of many subversive things and it was being real. And maybe this is just because we're watching it so many years afterwards, but it feels like it's in the last and most over deliberate of a group of movies that is meant to make you feel uncomfortable and meant to be boring and meant to be subversive and shit like that. It wasn't his last movie, but it was sort of the last in a line. I've seen two of his other. I've seen um, I've seen Breathless and I've seen um, it was half a lifetime ago, but I've seen bre- bre- Breakfast Breathless and I've seen. Um, like per, Paris Le Fou, which is like Peter the Fool or something like that. Both of them are like coherent movies, like plot-based, um, watchable, just fine movies. This was, um, and he he was very prolific. He made like, a, like starting in 1960, Breathless came out in the 60. And I mean, he made like a, what was perhaps like a movie a year through the release of Weekend. Um, and it was sort of his like statement piece um, for that swath of films. Um, and again, it's one of those things, I forgot who I was recently talking about this idea with, but it's one of those things where if you're watching or reading something um, from you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that was all, oh, I was talking about it in the context of Dune. Um, when you're reading some, reading or watching something that has gone on to be so influential, generically, um, stylistically, etc., and you're consuming it for the first time, it feels very derivative and um, like it's a copy of something. I, I, I think I'm sure it felt and seemed very revolutionary at the time, but to watch the ending of Weekend, where it's like the end? Question mark. Know, like the end of so. cinema question mark it just seems so like that has been parodied and made fun of yeah that's like, true it dragged through the muds you know over the last 50 plus years that it's like oh okay I'm pretty stupid <laughs> wait are you saying do the book dune is feels derivative now for someone who for the first time is reading it given how influential it is to fantasy, science fiction, etc. Um, I still feel like it. I read it for the first time two years ago, and it. I guess it kind of because I hadn't read that many fantasy movies, but it started me into a fantasy novel dive. Yeah, what I mean is, so, but like as someone who has spent most of his life, you know, entrenched in Star Wars you know, narrative and mythology and all of that, and who spent the last 10 years watching Game of Thrones, 
um, to then read Dune, it's like, oh, okay, this is like Game of Thrones. But obviously it's not. Mm-hmm. Game of Thrones is like Dune. Yeah. When you experience it in, in that order, that's what it feels like. To me, the thing about the weekend that bothers me the most is like Jean-Luc Godard, who's like has all of the sort of ability to be a really deep thinker about the stuff that he cares about, right? Like the best he can come up with for like a Marxist movie is at the end they literally eat the rich people. You know, like that's the best you can do. Like a 14 year old who's like vaguely interested in Marxism would come up with that. There's just like no, maybe it's, and maybe it's the fault of his philosophy, you know, that it's just like not that deep, but like someone who is like so deeply obsessed with these like class struggles and like depicting them on cinema at like theoretically the height of his career, like that's the best you can do. Like even if the movie made coherent sense, you know? It's just so blunt and indelicate and like uninteresting. Um, and maybe that's like just the way that, you know, like all Marxist movies are that way. I don't know. Like, I don't know. That was it's my duck yeah. I mean, like that. it's the, the, it's like, it's <laughs> art created with the intention of lack of artifice. Yeah. Like that is the artfulness of it. The but, lack but, of artfulness. But like, I mean. Is, which is but, kind of dumb. It's, it's also, it has become an artifice in and of itself. Kind of like what Andy is saying. Like the yeah. like, the unpretentious French, like, like that movie is like a joke of what a French movie is. Like yeah. now, like now the, the, that whole shtick is just shtick. And like, I don't know, I wasn't alive in 1967 to like watch it at the time. Like, but I'd be hard pressed to guess that that wasn't shtick then, you know, like the over serious artiste is something like Fanny Bryce made fun of, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. everyone's been making fun of that forever. And it just seems very unself-aware and it was an unknowing. Annoying. A lot of fours out yeah, there we but- need to put on notice. But again, like, how could it be unknowing when you have, when you're so, you know, like entrenched in this world? Like, how are you so dumb that this is not dumb? How are you so obsessed with yourself that this is the best you can come up with? Yeah, it really makes me think that Godard was just a fucking terrible person to hang out with. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember. It was a while ago. Imagine if the worst person you hung out with were told that they're great by everyone. Just like that's 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 right, who yeah. he must have been. It, it, it's earlier in the book, so I can't quite remember the specifics. But um, so Godard obviously us- usually is considered in the same thought breath, etc. As Francois Truffaut, contemporaneous French New Wave directors, highly influential for the um, the the revolutionary wave of movies that we're we're talking about. And naturally the, so, so Bonnie and Clyde starts with, um, you know, these two writers for Esquire in their twenties who started working on the, you know, the treatment for Bonnie and Clyde and their, um, their pipe dream was to get either Truffaut or Godard to, to direct it or direct it. Um, and it got, far enough along that they were meeting with them and there's like some anecdote about Godard being in New York at like a dinner party with the two screenwriters and yeah I mean, it just sounds like that 
obviously I can't really do it justice, but um, exactly what Rachel was saying. He sounded like a huge asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not a fan. There's a lot of what the fucking Dr. Doolittle. Uh, I don't know. I was passed out on the floor for a lot of it. Uh, the seal, the snake. I mean, like some of the fantasy elements of it were so out of place. And I feel like you could have just been like, there was a big whale rather than making up creatures. I think it would have been more interesting if there were actual, if they were actual animals. Uh, I don't know. It was just... Here's a question. Why are Dr. Doolittle movies always bad? I think this is is the only one I've seen. I've seen three and they're all bad. I saw the Robert Downey Jr. one and I was like in a school field trip and I walked out like and there were still children in the theater. (laughs) There were other adults there. I'm not getting fired. But yeah, I was like, nah, I'll, I'll watch the bathrooms. That is more entertaining than this movie. Well, as the production of this one attests to, it's extremely difficult to work with actual animals. Um, so that has that going against it. Um, it's kind of like a Mary Poppins situation where, um, you know, there's these series of stories that don't necessarily always have a cohesive narrative. Um, that you kind of have to create a patchwork out of like they did with Mary Poppins where there's like however many chapters or stories of Mary Poppins and Walt Disney circled like four of them and was like, Hey, I like these, let's make a movie out of these four. Um, Mm. And there's always been like plenty of rights disputes with um, the family of, uh, even by the time the 67 version was in production, the, the man who wrote them, I believe was deceased. So his, uh, widow and son were kind of in charge of the estate and there was a lot of back and forth with that because um, Disney's bread and butter is usually it wasn't a, this wasn't a Disney production obviously the newest one is I believe but their bread and butter is usually to make things that are free you know, to make things based off of content that is free so they've always had like a kind of begrudged fleeting relationship with you know something that had rights you had to pay for um, yeah, the live what? animal stick is, and one of the, I don't know how pivotal it is, but a big piece of Dr. Doolittle is a colonial aspect in which he goes to Africa and like assimilates the, um, you know, very crudely realized so-called natives. Shockingly, that's a big factor in the one that was released. Last year. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, I, I know almost nothing about the. Oh yeah, get a um, lot of that in that one. Not a lot. Of the '98 one, which I never actually watched. Um, sounds the '98 one is is the very different. The soundtrack sounds boss. Um, I mean, Aaliyah had a charting single off of the '98 sound. The '98 one soundtrack. I mean, but it's I remember seeing, I remember nothing of it. I know I saw it, but. It's set in modern times, right? Like Eddie Murphy's wearing like a modern doctor's coat and like stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, if Eddie Murphy at the height of his powers cannot save Dr. Doolittle, then I don't like, you know, 
that is Eddie Murphy at the height of his powers from a, like that type of movie standpoint, you know, yeah. like peak Mulan, pre Shrek, you know, if he couldn't save it, so then like in the midst of Nutty Professor. Yeah. If he couldn't save it, then truly, truly one of like the Dr. Bigger, is trash. One of the bigger, what the fucks, but maybe less the romance storyline in Dr. Doolittle was so weird and I don't know if it's because it was a kids movie they didn't want real romance but the weird love triangle like half-assed love triangle where his Irish friend is in love with the whatever Samantha Egger Samantha Egger and Samantha Egger is in love with Dr. Doolittle and Dr. Doolittle is is completely uninterested but there's no actual resolution except it seems like they might get together dr doolittle and samantha egger when he arrives back in england on the giant moon moth (laughs) um it just seemed so it's such a weird i don't know if it was tacked on because it wasn't in the original stories it was so half-ass uh because like the Irish dude has a is the love song is him or the first love song is him talking about Samantha Egger, and there's really no sense of of like him being spurned. It's just a very odd. Also, Rex Harrison is how many years older than Samantha Egger at that point? Well, the production of that was steeped in um, a alcohol soaked. Rex Harrison, um, like spinning conspiracy theories about like, how, um, uh, you know, the Jewish Anthony Newley was trying to, um, like swindle, um, it was trying to like conspire with or collude with, um, Brickus. I think Leslie Brickus is the name of the, the composer of all the music for Dr. Doolittle to get more, uh, like screen time. So, um, Wait, who's Jewish? Anthony the Newley. The Irish the is, is, is Irish um, like Irish Jewish or Welsh Jewish. And um, Rex Harrison reminded him of that every day on set and basically just like terrorized him and was upset that like anytime anything, because they were constantly adding songs and removing songs and Rex Harrison was unhappy with, you know, this take of the song and, you know, he would um wire them and say no there needs to be a new song now and anytime there is a whiff of anthony newley having like any romance in it or any um additional numbers in it he would just yeah i mean ravage them and and say that brickus and newley are you know just you know two you know hollywood jews who are trying to you know take all of the limelight Sounds or maybe like Brickus, so Brickus might not be Jewish, but Newley was, and he was, I mean, a lot of anti-Semitism was thrown his way from Harrison throughout the production. And just a testament to the sexism of the world. It sounds like Rex Harrison was a bigger diva than like Liz Taylor, like truly would ever dream to be. And never, like you never hear about it. Like, I don't know. Can I say my what the fuck moment? Yeah. I, I, I hope ours are the same. We, we both I'm going to do a little dramatic reading off. for you. Okay. Were they not the same then? You betrayed me. We said we had a what the fuck pact. Oh no, sorry. Um, here, sorry. I must go to fetch the water till the day that I am grown. Till I'm grown. Till I'm grown. I must fetch the water till the day that I am grown. 
then I will have a handsome husband and a daughter of my own and I'll send her to fetch the water. I'll be cooking in the home. I'll send her to fetch the water. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I should be doing like, 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 like come hither eyes this whole time. See, to me, a good what the fuck moment is, is like in an otherwise fairly normal movie, it takes a crazy turn into what the fuck land. And that's why the last few minutes of Jungle Book is my nominee. Hey, some people like it. Otherwise, a very normal movie. And then Mowgli sees a child, and not only is like, and this is not like a. I've forgotten about this part. <laughs> this is not like a ooh Wendy Peppercorn. Like, uh, isn't it funny that they think she's hot? Kind of thing. It is a like the camera is like imposing a this girl is hot gaze on this child in animated form, which is truly a disgusting feat. And then she sings this song. Um, her come hither song is really about how she fetches the how she her life is either going to be fetching water or cooking the whole time and Mowgli's like I'm in this and I get that like there's like maybe like a maybe their idea was like oh like she represents civilization so these are two things that like only humans do like the water and the cooking and the whatever so I get that it was like starts as like something interesting maybe or at least like less problematic but holy moly that end of that movie is wild and so strange and like i said it's an otherwise fairly like not normal movie like there's a lot that's like weird about it like the vulture section is fun and weird but like not like that i'd completely forgotten about the military i love the military elephants that's so good and the kid, well, the kid who voices the kid elephant is so stinking. Like, it's just so cute. Such a well, yeah, pre- that's what I was going to say. Do like you know Pixar who that voice. was? Who? Clint Howard. Wait, who's that? Ron Howard's brother who is oh, in, shut up. like, all, you know, all the Ron Howard movies. Yeah, it's Clint Howard. To me, that's such, like, a, like, 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 foreshadowing, like, how, like, Pixar, like, so perfectly, like, captured little kid voice. And that is, like, such an excellent example of doing that in a Disney movie, which actually you don't really see that much, like, pre-Pixar. Um, but anyway, in what is otherwise like a very joyous movie with lots of these fun vignettes that just are just like very, it's like the perfect example of like a Dr. Doolittle type thing was like, yes, you kind of have these little set pieces, but they're all fun. The end is so messed up. I just want like the notes from that meaning of like, she needs to have better come hither eyes. Like it's, uh, well, I wonder, I'm not defending it. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, when had they previously like really, cause they're constantly recycling animation and stuff like that. Had they, when was the last time that they, like the big feature animators would have animated like not adult women? No, I mean, she looks like a Bratz doll. I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it is, she had big old eyes and like these like very like, it's messed up. She looks like a Bratz doll. I don't know. But yeah, without having all of the, not having the filmography in front of me, I don't really, I can't think of I don't think so. when they would have previously done not animals, not adults, because it's all the, like Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, or Dalmatians. No, I guess it's pre-Robin Hood, but yeah, it's either animals or adult women, so they probably- I just don't well. understand, like, 
I get that no, they have to be like, up. there's there's some like pull that has to drive him to this village. But he's a child. Why wasn't this a mother figure? He's a I, child. He had a wolf mother. But like, but like a human mother figure, like he, that he would be biologically inclined to. Like to say like, oh, the biological urge that this child is going to be feeling is not to a mother, but like to another child, child, like girl. I don't know. It's messed up. That's why I want the fuck moment. Short and simple for me. I call it steak dance. (laughs) Starring Skip Martin. Guess who's coming to dinner? You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Do I? Yes. We ceremoniously, simultaneously threw our hands up in the air and said, that's it. That's what the fuck. It was three months ago. You're going to need to, to jog my memory. Steak dance. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah oh, yes. Yeah. That was like a, this is 1967. These are what <laughs> you are doing now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I remember. <laughs> and he looks... It's that- he looks strange. I, Andrew Reynolds, he looks a lot. The Skip Martin looks Very a lot like, like him. And it, he's just like, he's so hip. And he's it boogieing was like, on it down. It was like the, what's the, what's the scene in that thing you do? Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. <laughs> yes. Yes. Captain Geach, the Shrimp Shack Shooters. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Geach. Now I remember this. That was ridiculous. He does look like yeah. Andrew Reynolds. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, that's one. a great what the fuck moment. Again, that's like another like I think the best what the fucks are like otherwise very normal movies, and you're like, wait, 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 what was that? That's like the prototypical one. I love that. Okay, next category. Gosh, we finished the first one. That was a very long time. Next category is love it or list it. So- previously, uh <laughs> previously minted on the horror episode, but then we forgot to do it. <laughs> so I think we were like the official first time we were calling it the bank job award for movies that we felt forced to watch because of a vulture list, but then hated, but then we got that. that, Yeah. But that was the, you know, that was the long version. And then we edited it. So uh, the movies that are considered Canon are excluded from this. Yes. Like if it was mentioned in the book, this is like our deep cuts, and some deep cuts we loved, and some deep cuts were listed. <laughs> what are the not 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 what one, but what are what are the options for this? So yeah, we've got two for the road, Belle de Jour, Weekend, and Valley of the Dolls. Everything else was, you know, things that we were familiar yeah, with yes. from our our genre journeys, or they're you know, they're the landmark films. From this book. Yeah. Is that a revolution? To me, Two for the Road is by far the love it on that list. Two for the Road is a fabulous movie. Yeah, big time for sure. Love it. I, love I it. liked it. I don't know if I loved it. I gotta uh, have it. Some of the What's His Nuts, his character was very annoying on purpose, but yeah. sometimes too much. Um. I mean, I'm a sucker for anything. Audrey Hepburn. I, I really liked Belle de Jour as well. Love it. Love it. Um, L-O-V-E. I thought that was more transgressive. Like the, the dream sequences that were not 
thoroughly separated from the rest of the music movie were much more transgressive in an interesting way than than weekend was trying to be um and just kind of was nice it was such a small like store such a small time period It it felt very condensed and like and well portioned out um and just kind of a movie about like kinks and and in very much not in judgment of them was even when it comes to someone who obviously likes i don't know having sex with or being around love beautiful dead people um yeah i think that like what's interesting to me about that movie is that it explores the relationship between like trauma sexual desire and sexual behavior and like how those things like are often sort of unpredictably linked yeah um and like in a in a non-judgmental way and in also just sort of a like not trying to make any big theses about it just like sort of exploring it very well for this like one woman's life which i feel like for you know like if this were maybe like by a woman or written by a woman I felt like it would maybe feel a little bit more necessary to be more ambitious about sort of broad statements about that. But like I, because it was what it was and it was impressively like not too turned on by itself, which like, you know, is cool for a movie about this, like written by a man, um, directed by a man. Uh, considering like the jungle book can't help but be turned on by itself. Um, mm. I thought that like, uh, that that was kind of cool. And yeah. um, obviously like most of it just like hinges on like Catherine Deneuve is just like so brilliant. And yeah. It's just tremendous in that movie. Like, she, and she's 22. That is That's wild. Bonkers town. Yeah. Yeah. It is the, that, that movie is the opposite of a PSA. Uh, in that there's there's no like it's not a warning there's I no mean, it moralizing could, it could all. do it could probably and this is what you're saying it could probably do more to comment on the negative nature of her molestation as a child like it really does it just you just see it and it's there and it's connected to her that's not even quite what I'm saying. It's just like, I mean, I know I've said this before, but like the idea, like something does, we don't automatically have to say like a thing is good or bad. We can just say it is. And like, yeah. and like the is of that movie is just explored so fully. Like this is her sexual desire. It is attached to trauma. It is attached to her like weird marriage. She still loves her husband. Like all of that is two hours worth of just this is. Like you actually don't have time to moralize in that movie because just just exploring the fact of it in its wholeness is interesting itself and forcing people to watch that movie with and understand its wholeness without a moral judgment is in itself a transgressive act it's also a good example opposite weekend to to address some of the things we talked about in the previous conversation about weekend of um, a more subtle artistic way of, of sending up the, the bourgeoisie and similar sentimentality. Oh, Obviously, Weekend's much more concerned with that, but um, 
it still plays a role in Belle de Jour and it, I mean, it does it a lot much more deftly um, for sure in a way that's, that lends to a much uh, more enjoyable for me, at least uh, viewing experience. Agreed. Valley of the Dolls is an love it. Big soft spot. Big soft spot for Valley of the Dolls. I would never list it. I would never list it. I would not. I'm not going to list it. I'm definitely not going to list it. (laughs) I think it. There were parts of it that that were entertaining enough to kind of make up for the PSA part, like the whole pills thing where it really just felt like everyone, everyone, there were so many shots of the pill bottle. I know. As the, the antagonist that it just, and it went on for so long and it felt like everyone had their pill bottle episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Once um, that was kind of clear that that was coming, uh, that's uh, to me that's just kind of goofy and funny and entertaining. But yeah, no. to me, uh, when <laughs> sorry, Sammy but finished. like it's it's such an amazing like um like shot in time, like just like what 1967, what people thought of New York relative to. LA relative to like Connecticut like it's such a cool like window into that um and some of the performances were amazing it's kind of very kind of meta in a kind of a modern way about um Sharon Tate it felt like yeah I loved Um, her role in general super interesting and petty duke is fucking knockout mm-hmm. um, who is she like she's neely o'hara, neely o'hara. <laughs> and if that is the role that like when i was i i was watching that movie and watching her perform that and i was like i know just from watching this that Louis Fertel has mentioned this at least once on Keep It. Like, this is a Louis Fertel role for sure. Sam, we don't endorse or talk about other podcasts on our podcast. If they want us to talk (sighs) about them, they pay us. Okay, I'll ask them. Um, (laughs) Ask them to love it or list it. (laughs) Here's what I love about Valley of the Dolls. It's like looking at like this in the context of sort of film history... This is like if they tried to make Ben Hur about like girls in the 60s. You know, there's just like this like Hollywood epic like tone to it. Very like Cleopatra, very Ben Hur, very like Spartacus. Forced you know, dunk. in terms of in well, I'm thinking like 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 previous, but like oh, yeah. um like in terms of like scope of time, you know, in terms of sort of these like complicated interrelationships, this sort of like one problem like not a huge plot driver but just kind of these snapshots these epic feelings these epic performances um these impossible situations but it's like so you take all of that and you like domesticate it so much um that's what i love about that movie is it just feels like it's it's doing it's doing that which is like a noble effort in this sort of transition to a genre is that why you said transition from a genre Next okay. category is 
the Pinterest board category where we talk about things that just like where we like what's like our ideal if if the movie were a mood board what would we pick yeah aesthetics aesthetics speaking all of us are aesthetes obviously <laughs> as you can tell by the giant pile of laundry behind me um let's see i mean this is going to be super on brand of me but that calder set piece in the musical in Valley of the Dolls. The older woman singing the song about the tree. Oh. Love the Calder. Okay. Uh, refresh. I think you stumped the, shmo- the schmoolies. What? Can you refresh <laughs> my memory at all? So I in can't... Valley of the Dolls. Uh, I'll put something in the chat. She, what's her Thank name? You. The older woman who is kind of up against Neely O'Hara at the beginning. She has her own musical that's opening somewhere, I'm forgetting where. Somewhere not New York. And she has, the one song they show is her singing about being like a single tree, you know? You've completely forgotten this part. Anyway, she's standing in the middle of this like My internet's slow. human size, like very large mobile that's kind of reminiscent of, I don't know if it was made, I tried to look it up, I don't know if it was made by Calder himself, but very much an ode to Calder. Um, just big hunks of, of glass, of stained glass hanging around her. Um, so that was one. I mean, the I, I didn't love all the part, parts of the house in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but the porch, and kind of mm. that the, the patio area looked so nice. All the windows looking out on that view. I can't imagine what if that house is real, what it would cost like oh today in San Francisco. I know. Wild. And I mean, two very different road trip through France movies we had here, um, and two for the road Indeed. and yeah. weekend, and the two for the road one. Not that I've ever backpacked through France, but just having tri- driven through France and the small towns. and You set a car on fire in France once? Set a car on fire in France <laughs> once. Who hasn't? Uh, that kind of aesthetic of French countryside, small French towns, stuff like that really struck a chord with me. So those are my three ones that I thought of. I have one very specific one and one that's more generic. So I, the clothes in two for the road are just like joyous. Mm. Um, it's one of those movies where like, I hate movies like this. It's definitely like, it's um, where it's just kind of assumed that without really much effort, someone goes from being very poor to very rich, just sort of with time. Like you see this all the, t- all the time in movies where it's like, we started out, like we were just watching Father of the Bride last night. And it was like, we started out penniless and now we're so rich. But that's just what happens when you get older and you're like, I hate boomers. So that's something that happens in Two for the Road. Um, and, but like the look is great. Like her hair throughout the time, the costume changes are so iconic. He's got um, some great sweaters. 
Yeah, and also his clothes are like underrated too. Also, I feel like this is like such a height of like bathing um, moments. Like all of the t- um, all of the pool scenes in The Graduate would also be sure. a Pinterest board for me. Everyone looks fabulous. The pool is very cool. Like you know, Dustin Hoffman looks so tan. Like it's just like I love the pool stuff. I love all of the. Specifically, I would think if I could pick one thing from Two for the Road, I would say like the beach scenes from Two for the Road. Those are my picks. The Two for the Road aesthetics and then kind of very specifically the pool stuff in Graduate. It's a big year for bathing. Big year for bathing. Big year for movies. Big year for movies. Big year for Rhode Island. <laughs> What's your I, pick? Well, I've got a couple picks. I got a joke pick. Great. Of course. I've got a more serious, not serious, but I've got a, yeah, I got my actual pick. Uh, and then you've inspired a third mystery pick. No, my joke pick is, uh, since I thought you would both be talking about Catherine Hepburn's uh, wardrobe and guess who's coming to dinner. So my joke pick was Catherine Hepburn's uh, Abu the monkey costume <laughs> from parts of uh, guess who's coming to dinner, which is like a one for one match of what Abu wears in Aladdin. <laughs> like the little hat on her head. Uh, similar, uh, similar idea, similar first name. My my real pick is Catherine Deneuve. Uh, her Wednesday Adams costume in <laughs> Belle de Jour, which I guess is kind of a bit. I mean, that's kind of like the obvious low hanging fruit is it's like, yeah, a lot of the Catherine Deneuve woman, or, outfits. Uh, and, French woman is wearing all black. Shocker. But the but yeah, all apparently Saint Laurent or however you say the French famous French designer's name, um, designed most of the stuff that she wears in the film, which is um, yeah, I did see that. Pretty that was basic, really interesting. But, um, but yeah, it might not have been basic at the time, right? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I love that Wednesday Adams dress. I love the Robinson House. They talk about in the book how. Um, the Braddock house is supposed to be, you know, pretty hygienic and white and um, just sort of like classical, little austere. And then the Robinson house is like dark and mysterious and yes. a little wild. And Also the hotel. The I bar, love the hotel. The, the Robinson bar is great. Oh, the house, Robinson the bar. Robinson house, the Robinson house bar is, is great. I like the hotel bar better in that movie. Also great. Also great. That's what I got. Okay. I think next up. The um, oh no, sorry. Sam has it. Next up, right? Sam said his thing. I'm I'm back. Am I back? Yeah. Sam says he likes my I like my women old and surrounded by <laughs> shards of glass. What? For the Pinterest board. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. a big Shard fan. Um, <laughs> best, best score. score. We're getting we're into not, our yeah, Now we're into the Oscars. Yeah. Oscars. Okay. Where we um, recast the Oscars. Uh, Perhaps. I mean, going. We, there's a history of enjoying scores um, by Quincy Jones, going back to the original Italian job. But the score, I really, really noticed oh, the man. score for In the Heat of the Night. That's it was my so pick. good. Um, and 
even before I knew it was Quincy Jones and the fact that he is black, it the score allowed it to feel less like a white people movie about black people, but more from the point of view of Sidney Boitier's character. Like the, the just the tone was really aided by 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 the music. Um, and it's just very noticeable in, in a good way. That was, yeah, that was definitely the best score for me. And then for, the, for the record, the, the actual winner for this was Almer Bernstein for Thoroughly Modern Millie. Just for sure. some context. I'll note, I'll note that for each of them. I think yeah, it's yeah, interesting yeah. to consider no, what I the actual that winners were. And that's actually, I like that musical a lot for what it's worth. Yeah, Quincy Jones is my pick. That's I went with The Jungle Book. That was my second choice. Yeah, Jungle Book. <laughs> the songs in Jungle Book reason. are so good. And like the, t- the leading ones are not even like, yeah, like the, the march is so good. The, yeah. the like weird, doo-woppy, mournful vulture song is so good. And it might have been, because it wasn't nominated, but again, I, I couldn't really parse the, the discrepancies of like the three to four music related Oscar categories that existed at the time, but it might've disqualified itself. Cause a lot of, apparently a lot of the, um, or parts of the score are from like very, there's like a little bit of snow white in the score. There's some stuff Ooh. from sleeping beauty in the score. I mm. mean, stuff you would probably never be able to recognize, but just technically speaking, a lot of, uh, the stuff used to assemble, things are, are from a handful of previous disney movies if we had had best song i would have picked want to be like you by far second being only live twice i actually love only live twice as a bond theme oh it's a really um, good one it's a really good one it's like one of those, it's like it like sticks in your head in like a haunting way and like in a way that like feels very bondy um that is because i mentioned yeah. i mentioned okay. earlier how i you know i watched it probably when I was around 10 years old. And when we sat down to watch it earlier for this episode, it, like I could have sang you the song pretty much. Yeah, I, I, yeah. it's so and Especially, and the melody is just like, it, it, they use it very well in the rest of the movie, the theme from the melody. And the kind of like, I don't know if it's a xylophone, the doom, 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 the kind of like background stuff. Um, yeah. It seems like it was very much like the inspiration. And it's also, it's also very propelling. Like it's kind of swells in a way that like pushes it, pushes the movie along, which much like Skyfall does need. Yes, it does. Yeah. It's like, to me that like Skyfall is my favorite, like one of my favorites of all time. And you only live twice is the most Skyfall-esque of all of the Skyfall. We're just talking song, right? Yeah. Song. Yeah. Skyfall song is so good. So, but does it only live twice a lot like it though? It's less dark. Yeah. it's just like the like sweat i think it's like, more ma it's more one-dimensional than skyfall skyfall um but yeah just a shout out to um want to be like you is just like sure. such a the the like the rappy part of it you know that i'm the king of the swingers through the jungles vip i reach the top and that's the top and that's what's bothering me i want to be a man man cub and stroll right in town and be just like the other men i'm trying to tired of monking around it's so good like the lyrics are so good it's sherman brothers best it's so well delivered it's like who's singing it again is it louis prima 
That's yeah. really prima. The um the I reached the top and modern uh, like weird computer animation version. The um John Favreau has Christopher uh, Walking yeah, yeah. singing that, yeah. which is really funny. Um, moving along to Best Supporting Actor. Which went to George Kennedy for Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> which is an absurd thing. Which is I, an absurd I actually picked, thing. I picked actual, an actual nominee. It's John Cassavetes, right? From Dirty Dozen? Yeah. From Dirty Dozen. That's the pick. Right? Yeah, That's the, the su- move. Supporting- He's so good. The, the, both supporting categories for this year are kind of weird. I don't, there's no, nothing really stands out. The, the I went rogue. I went rogue with the women. Like the Let women, I think of it's like best like Biddy is like. One of those I think women. of of Anne Bancroft as kind of a supporting character. And I was just confused by their. Um, I mean, I'm always confused by the delineations in the Oscars, but this one felt even more so. Wait, which I, I one's John whole... Cassavetes in? He's like the most like rebellious, outspoken one. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I really like Charles Bronson. There's a lot of minor He's characters. my honorable mention for John, this. Is Charles John Bronson. Brown is really good. I John love Brown. Donald Brown. Sutherland. Jim Brown, right? Jim Brown, sorry, Jim yeah. Brown. I love really Donald good. Sutherland. So funny in that movie. The he scene has, where they... Weepy eyes. He pretends to be like the major... Um, yes. that comes to visit it's so Very i was funny. like laughing out loud like it was so well done a lot of the comedy comedy that movie was says lived on surprisingly well um here's why i picked john cassavetes is like to me a drive of that movie is waiting for the camera to, to pan to john cassavetes to see what his face is doing yeah like it's like oh like this thing happened i cannot wait to see what john cassavetes thinks about it it's just like can't wait to show John Cassavetes reacting to this or like what he has to say about it. Like it is a highlight of the movie. It drives the movie. You just want to see his face and see what it's doing and see what he says. Such a great performance. Um, and it stands out like, and it doesn't stand out too much. Like he doesn't, no. he d- is not like chewing scenery or anything like that. He is so fabulous in it. And like, it's, ri- it's also written very well. Like that character doesn't do more than it has to. Like you expect him to turn in a much bigger way to the good or to the evil, but it kind of, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, there's a certain like subtlety to the way it's written and like the way he plays it is just so perfect, which is why my pick for best supporting actor is someone who is actually nominated, which I was kind of surprised by, John Cassavetes and Dirty Cassavetes. Yeah, I mean, so what, or go ahead, Sam. Uh, I also don't know, it, are both... Uh, Zero Mostel and um, what's his nuts? Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder, best actor. Gene Wilder's best supporting. In then the I would following have, year, yeah. but I'll allow it. Whenever, yeah. But if if Gene Wilder is best supporting, I have to go with Gene Wilder. Uh, I love, but I want to go first. Go back to because this might be the time to talk about Dirty Dozen. Um, I was, I had seen it, as I had said, I had seen it once before and it really hadn't penetrated in my head that much. I was like quite pleasantly surprised with this movie. Um, 
I think especially with how, as a plot device, it uses the Jim Brown and Charles Bronson characters as kind of like the moral force that is pushing these, like, let's just do this and let's get out of here. Kind of like those two. And I mean, the scene, I love the, the sequence where they, it's the war games. And yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I'm like, my favorite sequences of all of 1960s, all these movies. It's just like so much fun. It's so heartwarming. You really hate that, that Colonel character that they are fucking with. Um, it's like smart. It makes sense. Um, I loved that scene. Um, I mean the the whole the whole raid on the the party at the end could probably be well done in certain ports, but it still is well done. I mean the Telly Savalas character <laughs> is so infuriating as a character, which is what he should be, but like almost to the point where you're like, this is, it's, it's, it's ruining the movie a little bit, how terrible of a person he is, you know? I feel like, I, I thought a lot about that too. I feel like he is like a villain from the time before we were obsessed with villains. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I mean, he's he like, was a Bond villain. But like that character though, you know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like, like today, if that movie was done today mm. in like a post Silence of the Lambs world, we are just so trained to like kind of like our villain, you know, or like at least think that they're interesting or want to watch them. But you don't, you're like, every time you're on screen, you're like, Oh fuck this guy. Yeah. You know, like that's like the feeling. And like, maybe that's what you should feel. Maybe like, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be. It, to me, like, I just feel like it's so easy to project our like modern sensibilities of how we should feel about villains um, onto that. And like, yeah, like you're not supposed to want him around. No one wants him around. That's the point. Yeah. It's not the that. Joker. Yeah, I was really floored by uh, watching it. I knew virtually nothing about it. Um, of course, I was always familiar with it. It's a pretty, you know, I think everybody's heard of the Dirty Dozen, at least by name. Um, I was very... I mean, it sounds like I'm scandalized or something like that, but I was, I was very, I mean, for a movie of 196, from 1967, I was very um, caught off guard by how contemporary that final act feels in its pacing, choreography, brutality, um, which is, oh, it's like so extremely tense. I think watching that on... Um, or watching that a little ahead of starting the homework for the horror episode. I, I think I mentioned to you, Sam, like the, that final 40 minutes of the dirty dozen is scarier than any of the movies we watched for that. I mean, it's just really, really good stuff. There's like a little fat you can trim in the middle. Uh, it's a very long movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super impressed I mean by it. Super entertained by it. Um, I love, I mean, I, could you really award it uh, an Academy Award for it? I don't know, but just Charles Bronson, I think, is... Um, so good. Yeah, really great as a support in there. Well, that's why he's only Charles an honorable mention. I used okay. to so, like, steely and, like, surgical. Yeah. And look, he, you know he'll protect you. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> he, uh... He also, and one of the... Especially in a 1967 movie, 
that last, what makes that last scene, that last sequence so good is you really think anyone could die. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. No one, especially because they're all, I mean, it's such a, it's a good setup of the movie and that they're all criminals. They're all like either doing this or like, they're just, they're dying no matter what, but like, it just feels like anyone could go down and you're just like struggling to get to that finish line. It's, it's, it's breakneck pace. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And it smacks a little of the revolutionary nature of the, of the time, you know, to some extent, maybe it doesn't really hold up by today's standards, but you know, it's not like your father's war movie, at least in the context of, of 67, you know, it has that sort of countercultural fuck you. I won't do what you tell me type type thing to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great movie. I like how it sort of like has, is like, it's not apocalypse now, you know, and it's not like ultimate, it's not super cynical about like a war that, you know, in 1967 people are still feeling pretty good about American involvement in world war two, but starting to get the idea of like, you know, there are certain things that just are, you know, that like war sucks no matter what, you know, and it like extra sucks if you're a mar if you're marginalized in any way. Um, so that's good. Okay. Yeah, my for real winner <laughs> uh, was uh, William Daniels for Two for the Road, which you oh know, maybe God. maybe yes. is not like uh, an iconic. What a year for important William. character for what the ages, year. but but uh, but yeah, what yeah, what a year for William Daniels. What a it's role Mr. for Feeny, William Daniels. Mister Feeney in um, in Two for the Road is just just pitch perfect as the oh my god waspy um anal calculating i mean i feel like i know like i could off the record name you plenty of uh william daniels's that i've met throughout it, my life like he's uh, like the original mommy blogger like i just exactly. like i'm obsessed it, with it, him it yeah. works so well in a modern context of like <laughs> like the all organic uh the way he treats parents. his kid is so yeah. ridiculous yeah it's so ridiculous but works on so many levels yeah that's, that's a great brilliant yeah yeah he's like he's yeah like the person who projects everything about what he wants people to think about his intelligence onto the way he's gonna raise his kid is fascinating and it's so good and oh and uh, the switching i one of my favorites is the like the the, oh the who's gonna drive yeah 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 it's just yeah very yeah. reads very authentic to me it's, it's so good stuff. um best supporting actress but who is yours did i forget or yeah, what did you say your mine was gene wilder okay oh, right oh yeah i was gonna also mention mine would have been if if um i was interpreting it that maybe the producers wouldn't be eligible i would have considered dick sean for for best supporting um who did dick sean play again who plays hitler oh yes in, in the producers oh so good i yeah. the, who's the person who plays the director though? kenneth that's kenneth mars is the writer like the german guy i mean there's no right? no, no not the, no, writer, the, the, director the director who with the dress oh right right i can't remember he's my favorite supporting <laughs> person in that i love everything about him in that movie but yeah dick sean dick sean is so good <laughs> dick sean is so that with the earring and the yeah. like, and the like watching him be on stage and like realize what's good about his performance is 
such a fun part of that movie while you're watching Zero Bustel and Gene Wilder's faces. Yeah, I mean, the performances in that movie are really underrated. I think they're, they're so, so good. good. Um, they're the better than the writing. Really good. Yeah, and the writing, I think, is saved sometimes by, like, because Gene Wilder's not playing that character for laughs directly. He's no. just playing a neurotic person, like a heavily neurotic person um, in such a like over, it's slightly over the top, not it's over the top of Zero Mostel, who is eating up the scenery in that movie. Oh, really? I think the opposite for my, for my taste, but go well, on. Well, because Zero is, but I, I think of- Oh, Gene uh, is having more- over it's a little too arch for me with the yeah. But I feel like Gene, yeah. but the Gene Wilder's character is coming from a weird place, whereas Zero Mostel is just kind of eating it up to eat it up. I guess that's how I rationalized it. But I just love their their chemistry is so good. Yeah, and it's such a good. <laughs> It's the just hard to watch is, two men be so sweaty so close to each other. It's so odd. They're so sweaty so much of the movie. They're yeah, performing like in the, the prison. Blue skies above. <laughs> Can't hear my heart in it. Yeah, it's so good. I just love, I, I mean, the first scene, uh, speaking of first scenes, the first scene is him uh, uh, with the old old ladies, mm, yeah. I believe. It's just such like a <laughs> hilarious way to start a movie yeah the, when i see like the right i mean like s- certain things of it like the mel like mel brooks can't help himself by like doing like the whole me touch me thing you know and i don't find that that yeah. funny no um, yeah i mean the female the swedish assistant yes yeah. that's is. a lot that's not very yeah. funny um in the musical she gets a great song uh mm, but yeah. that kind of saves it but yeah it's just like there's like certain elements that are always but um, is yeah, there the a remake of that? Of the what? Well, so the, when it was on the Broadway in the Matthew early Broderick, I don't think that they've done a a re. Um, I think it's just kind of been running. Okay, I couldn't remember I if there was. Is it? No, there is. I thought because isn't Will Ferrell in it? Wait, when you say remake, you mean? Oh, you mean of the movie? There's a yeah. movie version with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Okay, there. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't remember for sure. I could, oh, obviously okay. The I was. One. I thought you were talking about uh, what do you call it in Broadway when you revival? A, a revival. I thought you were talking about a revival. Yeah, and, and Will Ferrell is the German. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. No, I mean it's fine. Did Brooks I'm not a do big it Matthew again? Broderick fan. I think Nathan Lane is great, but. Uh, yeah, Nathan Lane. I mean, and the music is really good. Like the music, the music of that is musical really is really good. Yeah. Um. But, and it, and it, and it, yeah. Um. I, the springtime for Hitler bit is like better. I'd say like it's but, but it is amazing how little is changed. Like how perfect springtime for Hitler in the nineteen sixty seven one is. Um, yeah, it's like, that is just so the, you know, the old Broadway stuff is just so good. So good. Um, I'm looking at the, yeah. So like, I want to be a producer. Like, then, yeah, the music is good. I want to be a producer. I know, no, you're just, you're just copying the Broadway tapes at this point. <laughs> um, 
Should, should you? I'm no, so we saw oh, that. Oh, myself. How myself is such a good one. <laughs> it's good <as> song. <laughs> oh God, um, somebody said. I'm sorry. Well, play that individually. It's such sure. a good song. Okay. <laughs> no, I was um, gonna. I know it's not burning questions yet, but I was. I'll just ask. I was thinking about putting my own money in the show. Never put your own money, money in the show. In the show. See, I, I hear. Nathan Lane doing that because he does like I think in the Broadway tapes he, he does is screaming in <laughs> Matthew Broderick's face <laughs> as loud as he can and he also repeats it like doing like he said in a in a very Pumbaa voice yeah or, for sure Timon Timon sorry Timon voice my bad sorry. I do that all the time too.